Well, I'm very thankful to be here tonight and to see the good uh, crowd that uh, greets us on this occasion and appreciate very much your presence with us. I appreciate the congregation turning out their evening service over on Brundage for our service tonight. And I'm reminded of the statement in the Psalms in which David says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There are some things that they tell us are good. My mother used to think that uh, three-six tonic when I was a boy was good for you, but it wasn't pleasant. And there are some things that are pleasant that are not good, but unity among brethren is both pleasant and good, and we appreciate very much your confidence tonight. I'm going to read from the Psalms tonight, uh, the 33rd Psalm, beginning with verse 4, in which the psalmist said, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Correctly read, so reads the passage which will introduce our thoughts this evening. It's been a wonderful day. We've had a beautiful day in which to be together and serve the Lord. And now, as uh, evening draws near, we have gathered for another study of God's Word, and it makes us mindful of the fact that uh, we are one day nearer our eternal destiny and uh, our uh, meeting with God. And so with these sober thoughts upon our minds, let us approach God in prayer. I'm aware tonight that the Bible is not a book of science. It is a book of faith. And uh, therefore, we do not expect it to be used as a scientific textbook. However, I do believe that, I uh, do not believe that there is any contradiction of the known facts of science. The Bible itself, however, points out that there is a science falsely so-called. And some of the opinions and speculations of men, even some with, with scientific credentials, uh, cannot be proved or demonstrated and are truly at odds with the teaching of the Bible. Tonight in this lesson, I want to point out that over the years, true science has vindicated the teaching of the Bible as the true facts of science have been proved and demonstrated. And I would like to caution every Bible student in accepting certain things and advancing them as scientific fact when sometimes they are nothing more than what we speak of as urban myths. Uh, one of the favorite questions that was posed by infidels in a previous generation was whether Christians really believe a whale swallowed Jonah. And I have to go on record as saying, yes, I believe what the Bible says about that incident. However, not for the reason that one credulous man gave. Some man said that they had found a whale skeleton with Jonah's initials carved inside, and of course, we must discount that immediately. The Bible account states that the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's in Jonah 1.17. 
But I do believe we need to be careful about accepting myths and apocryphal stories to defend the scientific accuracy of the Bible. In recent times, some have alleged, and maybe you've read these accounts somewhere, that a missing day was found by a NASA computer and uh, that it couldn't be accounted for. According to the story, uh, the Bible student pointed out the incident of the long day when Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and the moon to stand still for almost a whole day. That accounted for part of it. Then someone else remembered that the Lord had caused the sundial to go backward 10 degrees as a sign that Hezekiah of old would be healed. And that made up the deficit. Now that sounds appealing to us. However, that story has never been documented. In fact, denied by NASA officials. I say it is unwise and certainly unnecessary for Christians to resort to such to defend the scientific accuracy of the Bible. However, I want to point out that the Bible, I believe, is pre-scientific. By that I mean the Bible anticipates the known facts of science. Dr. Henry Morris said, one of the most amazing evidences of divine inspiration of the Bible is its scientific accuracy. There are many unexpected scientific truths that have lain hidden within its pages for thousands of years, only to be recognized and appreciated in recent times." Unquote. In my lesson tonight, I want to notice some examples of what Dr. Morris is talking about. Back yonder in the 19th century, a man by the name of Herbert Spencer, who was a brilliant philosopher, scientist, and also an agnostic, wrote a treatise on the manifestations of the unknowable. And in this work, he set forth what he called the five fundamental facts of science in the following order, space, time, matter, motion, and force. Now, when we turn to the very first book of the very first chapter, in the first verse of the Bible, we discover all five of Herbert Spencer's forms. The Bible states, in the beginning, that's time. God, that's the force. Created, that's the motion. The heavens, that's the space. And the earth, that's matter. Thus, 3,000 years before science was actually born, Moses stated the five fundamental facts of science in scientific order. How amazing is that? Back yonder, you know, many of the ancients tried to count the stars. And uh, they thought that they could stand out at night and look up into the heavens and count all of the stars. We find that exceedingly difficult in our time because of light pollution. Some years ago, when I was down in Honduras, we were about 70 kilometers out into the uh, country as uh, uh, missionary, we were doing mission work there, and uh, at night there were no there were no power plants, there were no automobiles where we were, no really nothing of a progressive nature, and it seemed like the stars were so close you could almost reach up and touch them. Well, probably the ancients thought they could count every one of them, and in 150 B.C. Hipparchus said there were more than 3,000. And in 150 A.D., Ptolemy said there were less than 3,000. The total number visible to the naked eye 
must be something around 4,000 stars. However, the Bible said in Jeremiah 33 and 22, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. Now before the invention of the telescope, this must have been regarded as a major error. But today, we have to say that it must be acknowledged as supernatural insight. We're told that there are 100 billion stars in the average galaxy, and there are at least 100 known million galaxies in known space. Einstein, the great brain, estimated that we have probed only one billionth of theoretical space. That means there are probably something like 10 octillion stars in space. That's a 10 with 28 zeros behind it. Truly, it is, as Jeremiah said, the host of heaven cannot be numbered. David also spoke of the sun in Psalm 19 and 6 and said, His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, some skeptics have criticized the writer in this case, saying that uh, he believed in the unscientific notion that the, the sun revolves around the earth, whereas what truly happens is the earth revolves around the sun. But I hear meteorologists and other men with a scientific background speaking of sunrise and sunset, when actually what we see is not a sunrise or a sunset at all, but an earth roll. However, the Bible does not purport to be written in scientific language, but in the vernacular of the people. An eminent, eminent scientist, Dr. Morris, states that studies of modern galactic astronomy have indicated that the sun is indeed moving around a center in the Milky Way galaxy in a gigantic orbit that would require two million centuries to complete even at the tremendous speed of 600,000 miles per hour. He also reminds us that our own galaxy is moving with respect to other galaxies. Truly, the sun's circuit is from one end of the heavens to the other, and the psalmist was using the most modern scientific language possible when describing the motion of the sun with relative, uh, relative to the earth. Well, let's notice an example from geophysics. Now, the science of geophysics deals with the Earth's shape and structure and force systems. And in this field, the Bible perspective anticipates the facts of science. I'm pretty sure that <clears throat> back in the time of old Miss Columbus, people felt sorry for her for having a son who was so unlearned and so ignorant as to believe that the Earth was flat. Uh, uh, that the earth was round because everybody knew that the earth was flat and if you sailed off far enough out into the ocean you would fall over the edge and of course they also knew that this earth rested on stone pillars and was on the back of a giant turtle but hundreds of years earlier when men had no telescopes Job said in Job 26 and 7 he stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Now our question tonight is, how did Job know that the earth was poised in space? How did he know that? 
Scientists also tried to account for the Earth's relationship to the sun by using the term gravity. But that doesn't explain anything because no one knows what gravity is or why it works. In fact, when scientists use such terms as relativity and gravity, they're simply giving names to the forces by which God works in this universe of ours. The Apostle Paul affirmed of Christ, and this is a powerful statement in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, he said, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him, that is by Christ, all things consist. Now what does that word mean, consist? Why the word consist is to cohere or to stick together. Thus Paul affirms that the one who was identified as the word back yonder before the world was is the coherent principle in all of the universe. I'm happy that things cohere or stick together, aren't you? I'm glad that when I get into my automobile and drive down the highway, it doesn't fly apart. I'm thankful that when I lay something down, it doesn't fly off out into space. And so Paul affirms that Christ is the reason that all things consist or cohere. Again, Isaiah said in Isaiah 40 and verse 22, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, speaking of God. Now the Hebrew word Isaiah used for circle, we're told in the Hebrew language, is kug, the word kug. And according to Jesenius, who is certainly a well-recognized scholar of Hebrew, it means a circle or a sphere. And he says that is used of the arch or the vault of the world. Now you and I have seen pictures that the astronauts have brought back of the earth in space. And we've seen by their own eyes that the earth is spherical, circular in space. But how did Isaiah know that? The people of his day thought the earth was flat. I submit the reason that they knew these things is because they were in communion with deity. I'd like to notice now an example from oceanography. In Genesis 6, 15, God told Noah to build an ark 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits tall. And that's a ratio of 30 to 5 to 3. Now it is striking that these are the exact dimensions that are perfect for a boat built for seaworthiness and not for speed. In fact, the great ocean liners that sail our oceans and seas today that carry huge amounts of cargo are built on that same ratio. But the question is, how did Noah know the perfect dimensions for a seagoing vessel that hauled cargo? Well, the only reason that Noah, who was a landlubber and maybe had never even seen it rain, maybe the way he knew that, and certainly the way he knew it, was because God revealed it to him. God gave him the plan. Matthew Fontaine Maury is described as the father of oceanography. And once when he was recuperating from an illness, he uh, got his Bible and began to read the eighth Psalm. And he read in Psalm 8 and 8 about the paths of the sea. Whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea, 
Mr. Maury believed in the Bible and he decided that if the Bible said there were paths in the sea, there must be. And so his investigation led him to discover the great ocean paths, the prevailing currents, if you will, that are of such great value to seamen. But how did David know there were paths in the sea? Well, he knew it because God revealed it to him. I'd like to notice some examples also from hydrology. Over in uh, Ecclesiastes 1, 6, and 7, we hear the wise man saying, The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. I want you to think for a moment of the mighty Mississippi River. We passed over that the other day going to Tennessee, and I'm always amazed when I look at that, that mighty river. When moving at normal speed, we're told that it dumps approximately 6,052,500 gallons of water per second into the Gulf of Mexico. And that's only one of the many rivers on the face of the earth. Now the question is, where does all that water go? Well, the answer is, of course, the water cycle that's described so minutely in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 11 and 3 states, If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And Amos 9 and 6 states, He that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. Yes, God, who's the master of hydrology, reveal these things to the Bible writers. The idea of a complete water cycle was not even accepted until the 16th or 17th centuries. Scientist Pierre Perrault and Edme Marriott, Frenchman, gave the first substantial evidence of that by demonstrating that the flow of the Seine River could be accounted for by precipitation. But thousands of years before their work, the Bible described the water cycle. How did these ancient men know these things? They must have been in communion with deity. Said that a man moved into a housing uh, district one time and uh, lost no time in telling people that he was an atheist. And every time he met a new neighbor, he would tell this neighbor uh, he would, that he was a research chemist and he said, you know, there's no need to believe in the supernatural. Why, for example, we can make it rain now. We just send a fella up in a plane, he drops some chemicals on a cloud, and presto, it rains. There was a little eight-year-old girl, a neighbor's child, standing there, and she piped up and said, well, who made the cloud? Well, you know, God made the cloud, or else certainly he couldn't have a cloud uh, to begin with. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison, thought that static electricity was caused by the condensation of water. But that thought was recorded many centuries prior to them. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 10 and 13, this is about God, when he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth the wind 
out of his treasures. How could the prophet speak so accurately about such things? The answer, he was in communion with the one who made these things. I want to notice some examples also from medicine. We could mention many different examples and many different disciplines, but uh, these examples from medicine are very striking also. Moses told the children of Israel in Luke 17 11 that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And we know today that's literally true because the red blood cells in your body carry oxygen, making life possible. Unfortunately, people in George Washington's day thought that the blood was where evil vapors were found and that bleeding a person would uh, cause them to be well. In fact, uh, barbers were the ones who were usually responsible for doing the bleeding, and they would take the towels that resulted from that and wrap them around a pole outside. That's where we get the barber's pole that you see out in front of the barber shops. Well, our first president was bled to death because of this misconception. In our time, blood transfusions have saved many, many lives, and we know the truth about that. But the question is, how did Moses know the vast importance of blood, that the life of the flesh is in the blood? Also in Leviticus 17 and 15, Moses forbade eating of animals that had died of natural causes. Our health laws today forbid taking animals that have died of, uh, of natural causes uh, to the slaughterhouse to be prepared for human consumption. Moses also forbade the eating of animals of prey, sometimes birds of prey and almost all insects. Today we know the wisdom of those restrictions. Scavengers sometimes ingest parasites and if passed on to humans because of raw or undercooked meat, debilitating, even deadly diseases can be the result. Moses knew what he was talking about, but how did he know that? How did Moses gain that insight? Certainly because God revealed it to him. Another passage in Deuteronomy 23, 12 through 14, instructed the Israelites to bury human waste always. We know the importance of having a, a working sewer system today. Uh, Bert Thompson, however, relates the folly of the practice in Europe during the Middle Ages of dumping human waste out the window into the streets. As a result of that, microorganisms grew in that human waste and uh, contaminated fleas. And then the fleas were carried on uh, the back of rats into the dwelling places and bit humans, infecting them with the microorganism. That led to the Black Plague that swept Europe on two different occasions and in the process killing over 13 million people. If people had only followed God's injunction as given by Moses, those epidemics could have been avoided. How did Moses know to give people that kind of instruction? Well, you know the answer to that. I want to notice an example from physics. Moses stated in Genesis 2 and 1, and the heavens were finished and all the host of them Bert Thompson po points out that in the Hebrew, past definite tense for the verb finished indicates an action that was completed in the past, not occurring in the future. 
That is exactly what our first law of thermodynamics states in physics. This law, also referred to as the law of conservation of energy, matter, states that neither matter nor energy can be created or destroyed. Now, matter and energy are interchangeable under certain conditions, but it has been demonstrated that no creation or destruction of matter or energy is now being accomplished anywhere in the physical universe. Hebrews 4 and 3 states that the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, sometimes people think they found a flaw in that because they say, well, I can take a match, strike it, and it burns up. Well, no, all you have done there is change that matter uh, to a gas. You see, really no matter, no energy is lost. Now, the second half of that statement of the law says that nothing is being destroyed. Matter or energy may change form, but in the end, the total amount of energy in the universe remains the same. Now, the Bible has stated that long before man discovered it on his own. Nehemiah 9 and 6 states, Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them. God stated that first law of thermodynamics. Also in three different places in the Bible, and these are Hebrews 1 and 1, uh, 1 and 11, Isaiah 51 and 6, Psalm 102 and verse 26, the earth is compared to a garment that is wearing out. That's exactly what the second law of thermodynamics states. And this is the, also called the law of increasing entropy by physicists. Uh, this governs all processes. There's not a known exception to this law. Bert Thompson explains that as time progresses, entropy increases. That means things become more disorderly, more random, more unstructured. In other words, a flower blooms, it fades, and ultimately dies. A child is born, grows into adolescence, adulthood, reaches senility, and dies. The house that we build today will just be a pile of junk probably 250 years from now. The car we buy today will rust down and fall apart in a few years because everything is running down. Everything is wearing out. Uh, energy is becoming less available for work. Eventually, the universe left to itself will experience a heat death, and that is a time when there's no more energy available for use. Physicists discovered these things fairly recently, but the Bible writers portrayed them accurately thousands of years ago. What was their source of knowledge? Well, you know the answer to that. We could provide many more answers uh, to these questions from the scientific fields. But you're asking tonight, what does all of this have to do with the integrity of the Word of God, the inspiration of the Bible? Do you think that the men who wrote the Bible were scientists? Of course, they were not. All critics of the Bible would agree they were not. Well, the answer is that these men were in communion with deity. And God, who is the master of all scientific knowledge, Reveal these things unto them. And they anticipated the knowledge that eventually men of science would discover. 
Now, if you say that they spoke from their own knowledge and their own information, then you're at once confronted with the impossibility that they possessed a human knowledge of astronomy, geophysics, oceanography, hydrology, medicine, physics, many other scientific disciplines that we could mention tonight. No, it was not human information. It was superhuman knowledge, and it was supplied by divine direction. Surely one of the greatest uh, areas of conflict between the Bible and science is the theory of evolution. And although our nation was founded on biblical principles and all of the early institutions of learning taught creation, evolution has now become the dominant philosophy. And I agree with Dr. Henry Morris who said, and I'm quoting now, not only is evolutionary philosophy basic in most anti-Christian social, economic, and religious philosophies, but it is also the pseudo-scientific rationale of the host of antisocial immoral practices that are devastating the world today. Abortion, the drug culture, homosexual activism, animalistic amorality, and so on, unquote. I say it's no wonder that men and women in our generation are living and acting like animals when for several generations now we have been taught in practically all the schools from elementary schools to the university and graduate levels that uh, man came from a tiny uh, little uh, cell in the beginning and evolved into a higher thinking uh, 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 human being. I agree with Dr. Morris when he said Quote, it is a great mistake for Christians to compromise on this issue, or perhaps even worse, to ignore it, unquote. As I've already pointed out, the Bible teaches that the work of creation was finished, accomplished, or completed in the six days of the creation week. Evolutionists contend that the process of evolution that they say is responsible for man's existence here in this world and all other life on earth has been going on for billions of years in the past and is still going on at the present. However, the Bible record agrees with the basic laws of science, as I've already pointed out. The law of conservation states that nothing is being created, just as the Bible says. The law of increasing entropy states that there must have been a creation in the past just as the Bible says, or else there could be no entropy, no running down of the universe. Now some have tried to have it both ways and say that God may have used evolution in creation. This is the so-called day-age theory that attempts to equate the geological ages with the creation work in Genesis. In other words, they say that the days of Genesis 1 may have been thousands or even millions of years. But that won't work because it doesn't fit the evolution timetable. Now notice, the Bible indicates that all plants, even fruit trees, were created on the third day. But now get this, the sun and the moon were not made until the fourth day. Does that mean that plants existed for millions of years without benefit of the sun? How believable is that? There are many other contradictions that we could mention. But I want to point out also 
that uh, the days of Genesis are to be understood as literal days. And for evidence of that, we turn to Exodus 20 and verse 8, in which Moses states, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. The theory of evolution has a fatal flaw right at the beginning. Listen to this quote from the World Book on life. You can look it up in the World Book on page 4,431 under the section Origin of Life, and I'm quoting now from the World Book. It says, in the middle of the 1800s, Louis Pasteur, the great French scientist, proved that a biogenesis, or the origin of life from non-living substances, was not possible. The first life on earth appeared over a billion years ago. Scientists do not know where it came from. You think about that. Scientists have proved that the origin of life from non-living substances is impossible, and yet life appeared on earth a billion years ago, and scientists do not know where it came from. The very theory of evolution violates the law of biogenesis. One preacher said that I read in a, in a gospel paper not so long ago, he said, you know, I used to say that if scientists ever produced life in a test tube, it would shake my faith. But he said, I don't say that anymore. After all, if they do produce life, it is life coming from living things, not from cold, dead matter, unquote. Now we know that numerous types of genes can combine and recombine in various ways to generate a great variety of individual features. That's not evolution, however, that's variation. You know, there's all kinds of dogs and all kinds of, of different uh, things that are like dogs, foxes and wolves and so forth. But uh, variation is nothing but horizontal change, and that's always within definite uh, limits. But as Dr. Morris states, quote, there is no evidence whatever that such limited horizontal changes ever became the unlimited vertical changes required for real evolution to take place. Back in the early 70s, I was living in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, there was a man who came to lecture from Pepperdine, uh, Pepperdine, I believe it is, University. Uh, he was the head of the science department at Pepperdine, uh, biology, a professor of biology, and uh, he uh, held a doctor's degree in biology from the University of Alabama. And I was astonished when he stated very plainly and unequivocally that there is no evidence for the theory of evolution. Uh, Dr. Morris stated it well when he said, quote, no one has ever seen anything evolve. No one knows how evolution works. The fossil record shows no evolutionary transitions taking place and the basic laws of science show it to be impossible. Yet evolutionists insist that this is science and should be taught as proved fact 
to school children, unquote. As I said, I've not mentioned a number of disciplines this afternoon. I've said nothing about biology, geology, geography, or archaeology. I've not mentioned ancient history, fulfilled prophecy, a host of other things. But the incredible accuracy of the Bible science is surely an example of God's guidance and one that provides an impressive proof of its inspiration. The American infidel, Colonel Robert Ingersoll, who lived a couple of generations ago, said of the Bible, in 15 years, I will have this Bible, uh, this book, in the morgue. But of course, he ended up in the morgue, and the Bible lives on. The Bible wears out the skeptic's charges while it remains unscathed. John Clifford wrote these impressive words. Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears out the hammers, you know. And so, thought I, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptics blow, have beat upon. Yet through the noise of falling, though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammers gone. Psalm 33 and 4 states, the word of the Lord is right. I say the word of the Lord is right when it addresses astronomy, geophysics, oceanography, physics, medicine. The word of the Lord is right when it speaks about such things as biology, geology, and archaeology. It's also accurate in its geography and history. And although the search for continued evidence of inspiration is intriguing, there comes a time when you and I have to take that leap of faith Otherwise, we would be walking by sight and not by faith. The Apostle Paul, however, says in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. However, that's not a blind faith. We have evidence that leads us to believe that God is indeed the master of all things and that the word of the Lord is right. Oh yes, the Bible is right when it states that one day, we must all give account for the deeds done in the body. It's right when it speaks of the two destinies that men may choose. And let me point out this afternoon that either you have entered by the straight gate and you're traveling by the narrow way this afternoon that leads to eternal life, or else you've entered the wide gate and you're traveling on the broad way that leads to destruction. Now to enter by the straight gate and to travel by the narrow way means that you have obeyed the gospel. One day you put your faith in Christ as the very Son of God. You turned away from all known sin. The Bible calls that repentance. And our Savior said, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That means that one day you stood before men and acknowledged the faith that you have in Christ as the Son of God. And then you were immersed in water for remission of sins in the name of the sacred three, and rose up to walk in newness of life. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, 
or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.